What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. This is Jeff. Thank you so much for tuning in today and for listening. I appreciate you. Uh, This is a continuation to the episode I just put out here, episode 17. There was so much stuff I had on here and I wanted to get to. Didn't even get to the listener emails. So I wanted to make sure we, we got that covered for today and talk about a couple of future episode things that we're looking at. And just kind of stay on, on track here, trying to get caught up after uh, after last week and all the family in town and all the craziness. So I am broadcasting live here from the apiary right now and just got a new culvert and some uh, slag from my driveway in and uh, some things are moving along there. So that's looking good. Good progress with that. Okay, I'm going to jump right back in here and start t- uh, attacking some of these listener emails. Okay, first email I wanted to talk about, what do you recommend for smoker fuel? I'm having trouble keeping it lit. Any tips or tricks would be appreciated. So this is kind of an area where it's it's kind of interesting. When I first started and I had one or two colonies, it was really easy to keep a smoker lit, you know, for 15 or 20 minutes, half hour maybe. As you're inspecting for hours, you know, keeping the smoker lit became a bit more challenging. I've experimented with a lot of different things over the years. Some things work better than others, as with everything in life. Here's kind of my overview of things. There is an insulation type of material that I've, I've referenced before. I know Man Lake sells it. I'm sure other places do as well. It comes in a bag. You just grab a handful. You can kind of pack that into your smoker. That works pretty well. But it's not like the end-all, be-all solution. I'm going to come back to that in a second. You have pellets. The pellets, I've actually gotten pellets before that are specific, like, you know, um, bee smoker pellets. They worked really well, but they burned extremely quickly, and they were expensive. So I, I literally, I used them one time. They worked great, and I had enough smoke for, I think, one or two inspections, and it was burned out. And it was just way too cost prohibitive, so I'm, I'm not going back to pellets. Maybe if you find a great deal on them somewhere and it works for you, by all means, you know, have at it. Just make sure that what you're using is designed to be used for bees. I would just say don't – I don't know enough about that space and the industry to say whether or not like a wood stove pellet would be okay or any other kind of pellets. That I don't know about. It's just not my area of expertise. But just make sure that it's bee-safe, bee-friendly – when you are looking at whatever type of pellet fuel you might want to use. The other option that I've had really good results with, but it has its downsides too, is sawdust. So I have a sawmill. I've got circular saw, band saw, you know, miter saw, table saw, like all kinds of different saws. 
So if you're using any of those things, a planer, like any of those things that generate sawdust, save that sawdust because it burns really, really well. As you can probably guess, because it's really, really fine and almost powdery, it burns very quickly. So I'm mentioning all of these different things because what I'm finding is, for me, there isn't one that's great. It's not, oh, this is the one thing that I use every time. What I have done and had some success with is I use a combination of multiple things. So thinking about the smoker itself, right, you're trying to create some level of a fire that is going to smolder for a long time. So you need some finer stuff like the sawdust to kind of get things rolling. But you also need some thicker material in there that will kind of get lit and will sustain itself. It's sort of like a campfire, right? You start out with a bunch of small twigs to get things going. You put bigger pieces on top to kind of sustain the fire. And then by the time you're, you know, half hour, an hour into it, you're putting logs on. And those logs form large coals and it burns for hours on end. It's the same kind of thing with the smoker. So what I will typically do is I'll, I'll look around. I literally just I walk outside and I look for pine needles, pine straw, you know, a couple of handfuls, maybe like some dried oak leaves or whatever. Whatever dry material is just on the ground, I just grab a couple handfuls and I put that in. Then I'll sprinkle in some sawdust. You know, I would say based on the size of a smoker, it's probably the equivalent of like one cup, like a measuring cup or so of sawdust. And I basically will just kind of, you know, I use some of that insulation material. I'll pack all kinds of different things, but I'll also use sticks and twigs that are, I have no idea how to make a measurement of that. I guess maybe something like the size of like your pinky would be maybe, maybe the largest piece of material that you would use. Just, you know, a couple of pieces that are small to medium in there that, that will create those kind of longer burning embers. That combination of multiple things is what I have found to be the most effective. I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't use any accelerants on this, right? You got to remember, like, you're blowing this into your colonies. So don't put gas or kerosene or any weird accelerants on there with it. Just, you know, I'll tell you what I do. So I feel like I need to put some kind of safety disclaimer on this here. What I do may not be right for you. What I do may not be safe. You could hurt yourself or someone else and risk injury or death if you do this the way that I do it. Don't do it the way that I do it. Okay. I have a propane cylinder like from a camp stove, and it has a little torch on the end, little blowtorch thing on the end. You switch the button from the on or from the off position to the on position, and you use that same button to click an igniter. And when you click and hold it in, it will light and ignite the torch and it puts out a great flame. I use it for campfires. I use it for lighting smokers. I use it for pretty much any time I need to get something. You know, if I have a Zerk fitting on a tractor that is the grease is clogged up on it, I'll heat it up with that, right? I mean, it, it's a multi-purpose tool. I had one the other day that failed and what I mean is there is some kind of a gasket around the button that you push. So I switched it from off to on, squeezed the button. I'm lighting the smoker. And then there was propane literally leaking out of the on-off button. And it was on fire in my hand. So I uh, 
immediately dropped it and I stepped on it. I was trying to, like, I'm thinking if I can smother it for a second, I can um, prevent you know, prevent it from getting any worse than it was. And all I had in my mind, um, a thing called a blevy. It's a boiling liquid evaporative vapor explosion, I think is what that stands for. It's been a long time. But those things were like you see a big tank of propane outside somewhere and it's got fire pouring out of the top of it and like people are watching, you know, with binoculars I'm two miles away or whatever. That's like the vision that I have in my mind with my tiny little camp smoker or little camp propane thing. So where I was standing, I was probably a hundred feet from the water, and I was just thinking from this canal that's next to my house. So I was thinking all right, I just got to chuck this thing in the water. As soon as it hits the water, it'll go out, and then I'll just retrieve it. So I I moved about 15 feet, pulled my arm back to kind of throw it like a baseball, and just as my arm went back, the fire went out. While I have used, and for the record, that was not the one I primarily use all the time. This was one that I found in my garage with some other tools and things, and I thought, oh, wow, I didn't know I had this one. Well, I don't know where I got it or where it came from, but... It is definitely in the trash now. So I can't advocate or (laughs) recommend that you use that, but it's been a pretty effective approach for me up until that particular incident. So just keep in mind, like have a plan in place (laughs) in case something like that happens. Maybe keep a fire extinguisher handy or whatever. It's a very effective way to light smokers. I'm a big fan. I've been doing it for a long time. So don't be like me. Okay, we talked about Win 2. This is a separate email. We did talk about... Uh, when to extract honey, but for anyone who's just just jumping in and didn't listen to the whole episode, I'll do a quick summary. Yeah, you know, I, I like I always say, talk to someone in your local bee club, talk to someone who is familiar with your area and when to extract. Talk to someone local, someone who is, has been keeping bees in the area already, can maybe help you kind of get an indication as to when would be a good time to extract. I can tell you here, like in the Mid Atlantic, Southeast Virginia, this is a great time to extract honey. The one thing I didn't talk about in the previous episode that I probably should now is exactly how you get to that place. What I do is when I decide that I'm going to extract honey, I use what's called an escape board. They're made commercially by a lot of different companies, but essentially what it is is it's a board that's about two inches thick. You will put this board in between your top um, brood chamber, whether you're using mediums, deeps, doesn't matter what it is, You'll put this board in between your brood chamber and your honey supers. It is a one-way board. So what happens is all of the bees who are up in the honey supers, they can come down. They can leave it and go back into the colony, but they can't go back in. This will make your life a lot easier when it's time to extract Because then, you know, I've used a bee brush before. It was on that list of things, like air quotes, the list of things that you have to have when you start uh, beekeeping. you got to have a bee brush. I bought the bee brush. I used it once, made some bees angry with it, and I just haven't used it since then. I I just, I I blow on them. I brush them with my hand with no glove, just kind of brush them. they'll, They'll move. They're not, you know, they're not stupid. So anyway, by using that escape board, you may still have, you know, a handful of bees left inside that honey super, but it's not going to be anywhere near the way that it would be if you had not used the escape board. So then you can just brush off with your hand or shake off those last couple of bees, put them into a separate hive body or take off the entire 
um, honey super, depending on how you want to do it and what your process is. And you know, maybe you're only taking a few frames. Maybe you're taking the whole thing. Whatever works for you in your situation. But those escape boards are, are really handy, very useful, and that's what I do. Now, if you're if you don't have time to do it to do that, if you don't own one, you can't afford one, you don't want to make one, whatever the case might be, that's fine. I recommend taking the frames out, shake the bees off the frames. Like I said, you can use a brush, you can put a little bit of smoke. Don't smoke them to death, right? Don't just smoke them off the thing. Just just shake them off a little bit, and um, you know, brush them off with your hands. That is probably the only scenario I can think of where a bee brush is probably pretty useful because you just, you want to get them to leave. But I've actually, I've actually killed bees with a bee brush before. Like I kind of wedged them up against the edge of the frame and, and hurt them. And I don't want to do that either. So the escape board is, is hands down, in my opinion, the way to go, particularly for a hobbyist beekeeper, super easy to work with. And, uh, and that should give you an effective way to be able to get your honey supers off. So we talked about that uh, in the last episode. Uh, I did get an email from Shannon. She had a few questions. I'm going to jump over to that email so I'm going to go to my response, actually. A couple of things here. We already talked about when, you know, when do you harvest honey. The other question I had was around swarming when there's still room to expand. And we've talked about different things that, that the bees are funny about sometimes. You know, like I've had bees before who are using, you know, let's say, six or seven frames of a 10-frame deep, but they're not touching the outsides at all. And they're at this point where I haven't added more space above them I'm remembering this back from like my first couple of years of beekeeping, but I didn't add space above them because they still had plenty of space left and right. But they were feeling like they were constrained and they weren't recognizing that expansion space to the left or even above them sometimes. So we've we've talked about it before, but again, this is worth going over again. So I definitely don't don't mind it. The one trick I've mentioned, let's say, for example, you have a deep and seven of the 10 frames are drawn up, but they just don't seem to be moving anymore. And you're, you're trying to get them to work those outer frames. Let's just say, for example, you go into the middle of the colony. So frames five and six. You're basically going to push pr- frames five and six apart, one to the left, one to the right. And you'll pull frames one and 10. Now, I wouldn't do both at the same time. I would pull, like, let's say, frame 10 and then push six through nine to the right and drop frame 10 of foundation right smack in the middle of the brood chamber, right? Because they're not going to like that. They're like, whoa, 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 what is this? Why is their foundation right in the middle of the brood chamber? Brood goes right here, dag on it, and they'll draw it up and then they'll, they'll use it as brood space. This is something that I would do more in the spring, more when there's a flow, more when they're going to have resources that they need to actually draw up the comb. If you do it at this time of year, depending on where you are, they may not even touch it. They might they might just start moving things around and putting them in a different place, but they may not even draw up the comb if they don't have a steady source of sugar syrup or nectar coming in that would tell them that they need that space immediately. And the other, the other space kind of thing that we talked about or, or space management subject we talked about was kind of getting them to move up. And this is where, you know, I did the same thing is, is basically taking a frame from the bottom, moving it straight up. So you have two deeps as an example and take frame five from the bottom deep, move it into position five on the upper deep, and you want that frame to be completely loaded with, you know, eggs, larvae, capped brood, primarily anything that's going to make a nurse bee say, I need to be taking care of that. You want to just lift that up. Once you lift that up, that then forces them to draw space left and right where they want to put some nectar and some pollen, where they like to have all these things readily available for feeding larvae and newly born bees and newly born workers. So 
that will help them expand into that upper space. But yeah, that's where it's critically important to always be looking for queen cells, you know, early in the season. As we get to, again, in our area right now, I don't need to worry about it as much. I think if you're in a northern climate, like, and, and again, this is speculation on my part, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing if you're in the northern part, northern half of the U.S., northern quarter of the U.S., maybe into Canada, I'm betting you all are still in a nice nectar flow. So there's probably a lot going on. You probably need to st- still be paying close attention for the uh, for swarm cells and queen cells because as long as there's a flow on and they're bringing in resources, they're going to want space. So just make sure you're keeping an eye on things. Add space as needed. Just drop a honey super on. If, when in doubt, add a super. I had a question around queen cells and kind of recognizing the differences in maybe what they look like post-queen being kind of born. It's not unusual at all for a colony that makes a queen cell. They don't usually just make a single queen cell. They usually make two, three, five, ten. I've seen a whole bunch in certain really strong colonies before. The first queen that is born that emerges, she's going to come out of the bottom. So you'll see, you can look through after a new queen, if you if you just let a new queen be born, whether it's taking the whole frame out and putting it into a brand new colony or whatever your strategy is, you'll see the bottom of the queen cell where the queen has kind of chewed her way out and she's emerged. The other queen cells are going to have holes in the sides of them that she's made where she has stung them through the side of the queen cell and killed them. So that's a good way to look. I think in an email that I had gotten from Shannon, I think she said, if I recall correctly, it was there were three queen cells. One of them had an exit from the bottom. Two of them had holes in the sides. And then once that other queen that did not make it out was killed, then, of course, the workers extract her, get rid of her, and and just do uh, regular maintenance and uh, day-to-day cleanup. Okay, I've got another question here. Moving eggs and larvae from a stronger colony to help support a weaker colony. I'm actually going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back and answer this question. We'll be right back. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, all right. So the question at hand here is, should we move eggs and or larvae from one stronger colony to help support a weaker colony or maybe even a split or, you know, a situation where they just need a little bit of a boost? This is, it's a little bit of a tricky, tricky kind of question here. And the reason I say that is because it's sort of one of those, you know, that depends kind of scenarios or, or answers. If you take a colony that's really strong and doing well, whenever you take something away from them, you're weakening them. Now, in a really super strong colony, is it going to make a big difference? Probably not. But if you pull a frame, an entire frame out, and we did the rough math on this a while back, it's probably somewhere in the ballpark of about 7,000 workers, if it's a brood frame, that you're going to be sacrificing. That's a, that's a lot. But on a really strong colony, it's not a big deal depending on how big your home apiary is, you may have a bunch of nukes and things around that you're using just to support colonies, right? I mean, nukes are great at just being little brood factories. So you can just go into a nuke and be like, oh, here's a good frame. Boom, grab it, throw it into another colony and and let them run with that because that's what your nukes are there for. They're there to support your production colonies if you're doing you know that type of a, a management strategy. But the real question is, why is this particular colony weak. Is it weak because, you know, I did a split a little bit early. We had some cold nights and I think they lost some brood. Okay. So it's not a genetics issue with the queen. It's just a circumstantial kind of issue. Okay, fine. Makes sense. But the important thing I want you to be mindful of, and this is why it's critically important to look at your hives, inspect your hives, make notes, man. It's so important to make notes. If you have one single colony Maybe less important, but it's still important to be able to, to be able to look back and say, God, what did I see back in April? What did I see in May? And then next year be able to say, okay, it's April 15th now. What did I see last April 15th? Right. That's why those notes are really critically important to help you understand what's normal for your colonies and what's abnormal. But if you have a colony that is fairly new and they're trying to get established, you know you did a split. They really haven't even had a chance to kind of be themselves yet. Giving them a little bit of a boost by adding a frame is okay. There's nothing wrong with that at all. What I don't like is a situation where you've had a colony that has struggled from day one. You know, you install, whether it's a package or a nuke, you got a crappy brood pattern. They don't seem to be very hygienic. They've got temperament issues. There are just all kinds of things that are going on. Remember I talked about all those things that are, are important in assessing a hive's viability, right? The number one thing is being able to overwinter, right? If you have a brand new package B or nuke, they haven't overwintered. That queen hasn't had a chance to prove that to you yet. But hygienic, temperament, honey production, you know, all of these things are factors that go into, uh, and tendency to swarm, of course, but all these are factors that go into your determination as to the quality of the hive. So you see this colony that all spring has been struggling. They're just not producing a lot of brood. They're, you know, they're not very clean. There's, you know, junk in the cells. You're having just issues with everything 
They just don't seem to have it together. I've literally watched this happen. I've had hives sitting side by side installed at the same time. And one of them is just massively productive and one of them is a disaster. My recommendation, do not take from a really good, strong colony and give to a weak colony. If you only have two, three, four colonies in your first year, second year, right? Focus on getting your game. Focus on getting your methodology in place and your approach and and your way of doing things and fine-tuning it and tweaking things so that you have a system that works really, really well for you. If you take from, you know, if you steal from the rich and give to the poor, kind of Robin Hood your, your hives, then you take that strong colony and you weaken them. And then they go into the winter and for whatever reason, they don't make it. And then you have to start questioning and asking yourself, geez, when I took those resources from them to give to that weaker colony that didn't even make it through the end of the fall, was that really the best decision? So that's something that you had to kind of keep in mind and, and be thinking about. The other question was around spare equipment. Like, what kinds of things should I have laying around? What should I keep handy? This is a little bit of a tough one, and I would say it comes down to your budget. I will tell you what I did. I basically, when I first started out, I had two deeps per colony. So I started with two colonies. I had two deeps per colony, one medium per colony. No extra bottom boards, no extra inner covers, no extra outer covers. Didn't have a lot of extra frames. Not a whole lot of really spare anything. Then I quickly realized, like, as things started to happen, that it really made a lot of sense to have a lot of stuff on hand because you just don't know what's going to happen. My recommendation is basically to, at all times, at a minimum, have enough equipment to establish an entire colony right away. The reason I say this is because let's say that, you know, as you become more and more comfortable with bees, let's say that a neighbor is talking to you, they call you and they say, hey, I, I, I don't know what to do. There's a swarm of bees at my house. You might think, well, crap, man, this is a chance for me to get a free colony. And that's that's what it is. I mean, it's a free colony hanging on a tree. It doesn't get much easier than that. I mean, okay, let me do my safety disclaimer. Using ladders and other things that may cause you to fall and risk injury or death should be avoided at all times. Okay, but if you get a ladder or, you know, like a a small chainsaw or a small saw of some sort, and you can cut a low branch and you can get these into a box or a bucket or whatever. So don't forget about that as one way for you to get some, some free colonies. Now, obviously, you don't know much about the genetics or anything else, but it's free. Give them a shot. If they don't work out, you know, you let them go. But the other thing, too, is let's say you, you have two colonies, and it's the springtime, I would automatically be planning on doing a split. Now, you can just expand. You can say, no way, I'm not splitting. I'm going to make more expansion space. This is going to be a big honey year. That's fine, right? If you're giving enough space for that colony and you're adding honey supers on, you know, you could take a colony that has two deep, you know, brood chambers and you throw a medium on early in the season and boom, you drop two more on. Maybe you even throw on a fourth one as you get later and towards the tapering of your nectar flow. And the bees will just keep producing honey and everything will be great. But which again, you still have to be mindful of the potential to swarm. One of them, like I mentioned earlier, is going to be tied to the genetics of the queen particularly. And the other part of that is remember that it's the queen pheromone that drives everything. You can't just make a colony that's 30 feet high. Right? It's important that that queen pheromone be able to you know, be easily disseminated through the entire colony. 
Otherwise, it'll be a perception of weakness. The colony will will notice a diminishing queen pheromone, and they'll think something must be wrong with the queen. You know, we're going to have to figure something else out. So be mindful of that. Pay attention to it. In general, though, you really, if you're just talking about a couple of deeps and honey supers on top, that's perfectly fine. Just make sure you give them that space. But like I mentioned, having that spare hardware on hand is going to be huge. So at a minimum, like I said, you know, you're going to have a full, you know, two deeps, let's say two deeps and a medium per colony. And then I would probably have maybe three mediums on hand for honey supers. You probably want to have at least, I would say probably at least one, maybe two bottom boards available. You don't need to worry about stands. I used to have these nice custom stands that I made and on this really great wooden base that I bought from Brushy Mountain Bee Company years ago. And that was cool. It was great. Worked fine. Or you can just grab a couple of center blocks and throw the bottom board on a center block, and that works too. Or you grab a couple of uh, center blocks and stand them upright and then get two on each end with a 4 by 4 post, you know, connecting them together. You can put six or eight across that. I usually stagger them, one facing left, one facing right, one facing left, one facing right, kind of back and forth. But that's another option too. You don't have to go spending a bunch of money on a special stand the bees don't care. I've gotten in situations where I've had to just set one on the ground for a few days and I've done that. And I came back a couple days later and lifted it back up. The bees don't care. Okay. They probably do care because like ants and things will crawl in there easily and all that mess. But I think you can get what I'm saying. So keeping some level of spare equipment on hand definitely makes sense. I would say just keep it within your budget and just be mindful in the spring that if you're not giving them plenty of expansion space, you're probably going to have to contend with some swarming. So be ready to maybe make a nuke. You know, maybe you have a couple of nuke boxes on hand, or they have these things. I know Man Lake sells them, but they're, it's a cardboard nuke box. So you can basically get this cardboard nuke box, and in the spring, do a split, sell it to somebody in the cardboard nuke, bo- nuke box. Jeez, I can't say nuke box today. Nuke box. Put your frames into the nuke box for a nuke, sell it to somebody, and now you've reduced your population a little bit, you've reduced the possibility of them swarming and you made, you know, 150, 200 bucks, whatever you're selling your nuke for. The last question in her email was uh, winterization. I got a whole episode teed up for that. So we're going to dive into that here in the next couple of weeks because I know that it's kind of weird to be sitting here almost to July and be talking about winterization, but that is a reality we need to all start getting ready for. Paint. Paint is the next subject. I'll tell you, again, I think I mentioned it before, but, you know, it came in an email, so we're going to talk about it. In the old days, I would have my deeps and mediums sent to me unassembled. I would grab my hammer and my galvanized nails, and I would hammer everything together, and then we would paint. Usually, I would use the paint and primer in one, white paint, two coats. So, me and the girls would grab brushes, and we would just paint the first coat on, go to the next one, paint the first, the second or the first coat on the next one. And we would do that until all of them were first coated. And then we go back and do the second coat. And it was okay. It was painful. It took a long time, but it worked. And that was, that was fine when you were doing, you know, two or three hives worth of stuff. I think it was like two years ago. I think we had about 50 hives to do. And I finally, I, I just broke down. I was like, I can't, this doesn't scale. Right. When you're a hobbyist and you've got one, two, five, ten colonies, yeah, hammer, galvanized nails, you know, paintbrush, no problem. When you're getting into the hundreds, it just doesn't doesn't work anymore. 
So I got a, I think I went to Harbor Freight and I got a crown stapler and then I got like a brad nailer and then I got a Wagner power painter, which like this particular model, I actually really like it a lot. It's, it r- works really well. And most importantly, the cleanup is about five minutes, which has always been an issue with those types of things. Like they, you use them and it takes like an hour to clean them and it never, you use it once and it never works again the way that it did the first day you use it. But that painter actually works really well. But now I do the exact same process. I order unassembled, I put things together, but then I'm using the glue and I use a crown stapler and I go boom, 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 boom. I hit my staples all the way around. And then when it's time to paint, I use my little Wagner power painter and I can paint literally 10 times faster. I could do 200 hive bodies with two coats in probably about three hours. It's just, it's so much easier. What I recommend as far as paints go is I do like the all-in-one primer painter. I just, it's just easier. Yes, you could put one coat of a primer on, let it dry, then come back and put like one coat of a paint on. Absolutely fine. But I just use the outdoor rated primer paint in one, and that's what I go with. As far as colors go, the only recommendation that I personally have is I think lighter colors are better. I do have a system that was in place a couple of years ago where I painted all of the four-frame nukes were two colors, and all of my five-frame nukes were two different colors. So from a distance, if I was looking at a colony and I knew I needed to add, you know, let's say I needed to put another five-frame nuke body on top of an existing one, I could look over and say, okay, green and blue, those are five frames. Pink and yellow are four frames. And those were the actual colors that I used that year. That was really handy because it made it easy for me to see from a distance. The one recommendation I would make around paint, don't go with your really dark colors. And the only reason I say this is just because of the way that just natural sun kind of thing, like the darker colors absorb the heat better. That's just really the only reason I have done nothing with this scientifically. I'm just thinking to myself, like it just doesn't make sense to make paint your hive black or Brown and have it in the sun all day. I feel like it would be hotter. Don't know for sure. Somebody might tell me that I'm wrong on that one, but that's just my thing. I don't do that. Or maybe even you have like overwintering hive bodies and you paint them black and then you put your, you know, you put your colonies into the black deeps over the wintertime to help absorb more heat. Most people just wrap like some roofing paper around them and that helps to seal up any cracks and helps to absorb some of the heat. We'll talk about that in the winterization stuff as well. But here is the trick. Here's the ultimate trick that makes the whole, the whole, you know, listening today worthwhile. If a person buys paint from Home Depot, I haven't done this at Lowe's, but if they buy paint, and for whatever reason, I guess there's like a money-back guarantee, you don't like the paint, bring it back. They will mark that down like 50 to 70%. That's how I get my paint for my colonies. I Every time I go in there, I talk to I'm not going to say her name. I don't want to get her upset with me. But I go in and I say to the girl, I'm like, hey, how you doing? You got any return paint? And if they have returned paint, I'm getting the exact same exterior grade primer paint in one for like 50 to 70% off. I don't care what color it is. Pink, red, yellow, green, blue, whatever. I don't care. And that's what I use, and I get a great discount on it. I've got a five-gallon bucket of some really premium paint ready to go for my next round of painting, and that's how I do it. Okay, the last question that I have came in from Dave, and Dave was asking, you know, what do we do with our bees to keep them from kind of building comb between the upper 
and the lower hive bodies, right? So if you think about that, you've got 10 frames over 10 frames, and there's that space in the middle, you know, where the two deeps are, are sitting on top of each other. It's not uncommon for the bees. They're always looking for more space, right? So it's not uncommon for them to, you know, be building left and right and wherever, wherever direction that they're building home. And then maybe they run out of space or they're not seeing any additional space immediately available, and they'll just start going straight up. They'll try to connect those two big sections of comb. Uh, that's just normal for them to want to connect the, those sections of comb anyway. But the best way that I've found to kind of stop them from doing that, there's there's two things. One of them, again, is a space-related issue. So if they need more space, they need more room, add a honey super. You know, depending on your configuration, add another deep. Just depends on where you are in, in your setup or another medium, whatever makes sense. But the other thing that can help prevent this, too, is making sure that you're doing regular inspections, right? And, Dave, I'm not throwing you under the bus here. I'm sure you're, you're doing inspections regularly. When, those, when, the, when the workers really get cranking along and they're doing their thing, they can build comb very quickly. So, you know, you could do an inspection one week, come back the next week, and things are stuck together. So it's not, an, you know, a reflection negatively on the beekeeper at all. But here's the trick that I use. If I grab a frame from the top hive body and I'm pulling up on it, and I know that I've got it freed from that hive body itself. It's freed left and right, and I'm pulling up, and I can feel a lot of resistance. That's a pretty good indicator that, just like Dave mentioned in his email, right, they've drawn the comb straight up and kind of connected those two frames. So, so frame 5 of deep 1 is connected to frame 5 of deep 2. Here's my trick. Take your hive tool. Separate all of the corners of hive bodies one and two, so your first deep and your second deep. Separate those corners and then lift up. You can start by lifting, you know, one side a little bit, lift the other side a little bit, and then just give a 90-degree turn. Just turn the whole thing 90 degrees, and you'll basically rip that comb apart. And then once you do that, you can either set that deep aside and try and clean things up on the bottom deep. That's what I recommend. If you can just set that whole deep aside, I usually flip the outer cover upside down, and then I will set my, my deep down on top of that. It gives me a place to set it not on the ground because if you're, you put them on the ground, you're going to have all the stuff from the ground getting stuck all on your frames. It's just going to become a mess. So make sure you have something figured out. For me, it's always flip the outer cover over and set the deep on top of that. But on that lower deep now, you'll see, right, you probably are going to see some exposed drone brood, maybe some worker brood from where you kind of tore things open. Just grab your hive tool, scrape it all off. You're going to lose some bees on this one, right? They're going to be trying to fix things up, you know, clean things. They're not going to be real happy with you. Definitely make sure you're using smoke. Scrape the tops of all those frames. Get all that junk off of there. And then you're going to need to go do the same thing with the bottoms of the upper deep that you just removed. So finish up your inspection of that bottom deep. Bring the top deep. Put that back on. And then pull those frames out, scrape the junk off the bottom, put them back. And, and while you're there, you know, you're doing an inspection anyway. You're checking things out. You're looking for all the things you would regularly look for anyway. Just scrape that extra comb off. Unfortunately, other than giving them space and making sure that they have plenty of space available, um, and then other than using that 90-degree kind of rotation trick, there's not really anything you can do to prevent it from happening. Uh, I would just say regular inspections are, are important. And... Um, you know, some colonies do it and some don't. You know, I think I've got, I would say probably like 20% of mine will do that. 20, 25% at any given point in time will be trying to connect everything up. And the other ones are really good about it. So it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, you have to contend with. 
Well, folks, that wraps it up. I've got all the questions taken care of, a lot of things on the list here in the coming weeks. So we'll get everything out. It is getting hot here, and the birds are still chirping, which is great. But I am ready to kind of wrap this up and get ready to get out here on the farm and get to work. I've got a busy day ahead of me. I hope you folks have a great day. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to one another, and uh, don't hesitate to reach out if you need anything. It's just Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Be well, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.